Today's scripture comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, and verses 18. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of God. Hey, Revive. We are now in commandment number seven out of, out of the Big Ten. And um, let me give you a little bit of an intro today. I've actually, I don't know if is dread the right word? I've been nervous about this sermon um, all week long. It, today is a big sermon. And today what I want to give you it's, uh, is, is actually a really huge piece of biblical theology. And I want to give you a little bit of warning today. It, it's, this is one, it would not be an easy sermon to, to deliver nor to hear if we are gathered in, our, in the regular way. But today I want to ask you especially to have your mind focused and I need to take you through an important sweep of biblical theology for you to understand um, this command not to commit adultery. And, one of the, and this is a hugely relevant thing inside of our, our, our culture, is I need to give you a theology of sex. And in order to understand sex, you actually need to understand covenant, which mostly most of us don't understand. And it's a huge hole in life. And so um, I want to just say a few Introductory comments before I get into the meat of today's message on adultery. And um, what I want to just tell you first is we're going to do this in two parts. So this is the first part on adultery. And today's mostly going to be about God. Um, you think I'm going to be talking about, you know, the, your sex life or, you know, your, you, you and your, your, uh, your wife and you or your husband and you. I'm actually, that's not primarily what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about something profoundly spiritual. And so, because the meaning of sex is profoundly spiritual. Um, and so today we're going to actually talk mostly about God. And then part two next week, I want to talk about um, what's broken in our sex life and the application of this text into more, if you want to put it, the practical portions of our life. Right? But I do believe that this portion of theology, it may seem a little bit more heady, if I, if that, if I might put it that way, but it's unbelievably practical. It's unbelievably practical, okay? Um, let me say a little something about this, um, something else. Uh, you know, for this is, we're talking about um, a dicey subject. And I'm not going to say anything uh, graphic or prurient, but the Bible can get graphic. And we're going, I'm going to take you to a passage in the Bible today that does not mince words. And it's, it's, uh, these are words from God. And it's from the prophet Hosea, and God does not mince words. He is angry, and he is very tough. And he calls our idolatry adultery. And so um, I want to say a little something about this. You know, so I'm not going to say anything graphic. Parents, you have, um, you, know, you have to think about this. But I would, this is my recommendation. Children may not understand this sermon as well, and, and, and it, they, it'll probably go over their head, and, and it won't make sense to them anyway. But I absolutely think teenagers should listen to this message. Do you have a 12-year-old, 11-year-old even? Oh, they need this message. Um, as they go and grow into this world, into this culture, they need this teaching to help shape their heart so their hearts will not grow adulterous and unfaithful to the Lord. Because this is where, where idolatry as adultery is what we're talking about today. And idolatry as adultery starts from the heart. 
and from our desires and how we long for some goodness in the world to be our God, to be our redeemer, to be the one that completes us and fills us and gives us our joy. And that doesn't start, you don't just grow up as an adult and suddenly you become an adulterer toward God. Um, we practiced that for years and years, especially in our teenage years. And so I would strongly recommend your teenager hear today's message and that for those of you who are parents, you would speak to your teenagers just as um, you know, that, that important text about speak of these things um, around the table says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. One more thing before we get to today's uh, message. Um, we are in what's, called the, what's typically been called the second table. So the Ten Commandments are typically divided. Some people think of it as the first four commandments tend to regulate our, our relationship to God. And then the last six commandments are what some people call the second table. The first table, the first four. And the second table, the last six of our relationships toward one another. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, don't, don't murder honor your father and mother, but um, what I want to emphasize to you today, and I want to just give you a, a little taste of this, you know, so um, commandment number five, honor your father and mother. It seems to be mom and dad, but it's still about God. All these commandments are still profoundly about God first and foremost, always, which is why the gospel, you, you can have the law and it gives you some measure of wisdom and it kind of works, but it doesn't deeply, it'll, we can never be healed by the law. Only the gospel can complete and fulfill us. And so just take commandment number five. It's about your mother and father, but actually it's always a pointer toward God as your father. And our own relationship to our mother and father, it's, it's a picture of like what it means to be loved by God and trust him as our father. Commandment number six. You heard a, you heard a message last week from Pastor Young. It's about murder, but he went to um, Matthew chapter 5 from Jesus where he talks about hatred, where he talked about the roots of murder come from the heart. And really, the reason murder doesn't just happen, it starts from the heart. And really, it's still about God. Why? Because God is not a murderer. He's not one who takes life. He gives life. He does not one who unjustly and in an evil manner takes life. He's not a murderer like us or a hater or a bitter unforgiver like we are. He is he's one who gives life. Um, let's take commandment number nine, which we haven't, uh, you know, wait, I mean, eight. You shall not steal. God is not a taker. He is a radical, generous giver. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is always truth unto justice. Not a liar, not a gossip, not using our tongues to cut one another down and then to steal with each other through false lawsuits which is, or, or uh, slander each other through our politics, which is the common way that we violate commandment number nine, but God is truth unto justice and love and mercy and beauty. And, um, and we're talking about today commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And um, what I want to show you today is it's always about God. And today, um, let me just give you the brunt of it. Um, we're the adulterers, and God, this is the core message today. The vision of the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of condense to you a huge piece of biblical theology in this condensed time, and, and to give it to you kind of in a, in a simple way, in the Bible, it starts that God's intention was to marry us, 
to become united to us, and then to cherish us and to love us. And instead, we cheat on him. We betray him. And adultery is that which God first and foremost suffers. It's not first and foremost what a husband does against his wife or a wife does against her husband. Human husbands and human wives who fail their marriages, but it's about human beings, us as a very terrible, terrible bride who cheats on the most glorious and most important bridegroom, God himself. Okay, so that's the intro. (laughs) Let's get at it. Three parts. Part one, covenant as the source of all life. Part one, covenant as the source of all life. And I'm going to give you a theology of the meaning of sex today through covenant. Part two, adultery is profound betrayal. Adultery is profound betrayal. It is first and foremost not about sex. It is about relationship. It is about relationship and the spiritual, and it is a horrific form of betrayal into that relationship. And part three, I'm going to close by, of course, giving you a glorious portion of the gospel, and I'm going to talk about the ultimate marriage and the healing of the world. This thing we're going to talk about today, adultery is a clue into the most broken thing in the world in all of history. And God's way of healing the world is through the ultimate marriage, um, which is pointed to through the gospel. Okay, so part one, covenant as a source of all life. I'm going to blitz you through some important pieces of scripture today. And the first one I want to take you to is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Um, and so here's Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. And if we can have that um, project if you found the screen. And I want you to hear and follow this. All right. So this is after creation, right? After cre- this is God's done creation. And there's no sin in the world up to this point. And then God shows us what his intention for human life is, what it means to be human, and for all of human history, actually. And it shows right here. And so here's how it goes. It's actually in marriage. And so right, what's happened is God has made Adam. He's then he's made Eve, as, as many of you know. He's actually made Eve from a piece of her. So it's the point is that it's the completion. Adam is incomplete without Eve. And that human life is incomplete without the other that brings us fulfillment through a union in covenant. So here's the verse, verse 23. So this is what... Adam said in response, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's the important verse. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me read that verse 24 one more time. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this verse many times. You've gone to weddings, hopefully you've heard this many times. Um, This is the fundamental definition of marriage. It is also the key to understanding covenant. So here's what it is. A lot of people think that... um, 
that, you know, first there was this thing called, you know, you know we have a man and we have a woman and they got to have babies. We're not going to have life. So God invented marriage, right? That's not what, what he did first. What he did was he said, I'm going to make these people and I'm going to marry them. <laughs> and then right after he made creation, he said, I want to give a picture of what that covenant, what that relationship, that fundamental relationship is called covenant, where two who are distinct, you have a distinct individual and you have another distinct individual. They are different, but there is a way they can profoundly become one. A man shall leave his father and they shall become one flesh. There's a profound new kind of union. That's what covenant is. And when God made creation, he had this in mind. Covenant was the intention of creation. And then at the center of all of human life, you know what he put to build and make all of human life? Well, he put covenant to human life. And so any culture that does not have marriage, well, it's going to die out. By the way, our culture, if we don't change, and if we don't go back to God's understanding of covenant in marriage, America's going to die. It's just, it's, we're, we're just dying right now. There is no culture that can live without covenant. It's, actually, it's the absolute source of life. And everything about it is the source of life because where will your loneliness be quenched? That, uh, the one who is the other will not just come into you like bodily. We're talking about sex today, bodily. But really, the bodily is just a picture of the more fundamental reality. So this, this, uh, this, this verse, a man shall leave his father and mother and his whole fast with wife and they shall become one flesh. I don't know if any of you understand this, but this is talking about sex. <laughs> and if it wasn't clear, well, verse one, and they were both naked and they were happy about it. That's about sex. But you know what? It's first and foremost about covenant. Because in the Bible, sex is intrinsically, the covenant is at, is at the essence of sex. And covenant and se sex is not primarily a bodily activity. What is going on is primarily a relational and spiritual activity. It's God, us being united to God, and then us in the, in the core of our being at the most important relationship, being united toward your spouse and then toward, and toward God. This is why the person in your life that you are, you are to love the most besides God is your spouse. Your spouse is, is the most profound relationship in your life apart from God. And so, just a little comment about this. Some of you um, don't like your spouse, but you, you, you love your kids. And that's, that's seriously broken. <laughs> You're in big trouble. And your children are in trouble. Because that's not how God made it. Because marriage is, first and foremost, a profound relational and spiritual union, which is intended to mirror and reflect the most important union that God intended all of human life and all of human history for. Therefore, in our culture, if you separate out the bodily activity of sex, we call it sex, okay, from the covenantal union, that's wicked. It is inviting death and destruction into our life. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I'm saying something that's really tough. And, of course, you know, if you don't have to be a Christian today, you know this is the norm of our society now. Um, 
Our society isn't just non-covenantal. I would say it's anti-covenantal. We're anti-covenantal to the core. We don't even want God. We do want sex, but we don't want God. And I'm not even sure if people want the relationship connected to sex. We want sex. We want it disconnected. That's, that's a death sentence. And um, we are paying the price. And I want to just say a little something to you today. I'm so thankful if you came and joined our worship service today and you do not believe in Jesus. Um, but if this is a, a question, and there's a lot of people today because you don't like the sexual ethic of Christianity. And that's one of the reasons why you reject Christianity. But I want to say something to you today. Um, you think, if you think you can put these things into two separate boxes, sex over here and Christianity over here, you like all that stuff about God and forgiveness and justice from God and love, you know, helping the poor, but somehow the sexual ethic, we're going to just we're gonna separate. There is, that, that's not going to happen. And one of the things I want to say to you today is sex is a pointer. It's ultimately the physical expression of the deeper essence. Let me say that again. Sex is the physical expression and celebration of the deeper essence of the relational and spiritual union. And this might sound a little strange. When a husband and wife most deeply love each other in their bed through their sexual union, you know that's incredibly pleasing to God. You know why? Because that, that, that unbelievable union where everything is coming together, mind, heart, soul, body, everything, that in that, pro, in that moment of union is what God intends that we, everything that we are, that we shall love God with our heart, mind, heart, soul, body, everything. You see, that's, 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 that's the heart core commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with everything that you got, with all your strength. Well, that is the, the, the completion of that is covenant. And so, um, let me say a, a few things about this in our, uh, about, about the, some of the consequences of this. And, uh, you know, I don't want to belabor this too much, but just some, some points about this. In the secular world, there really can't be a good definition of sex tied to relationship because these things are, it's going to fall apart. When I was in college, um, it started to become completely normal that people had sex before and outside of marriage. I mean, heck, before I hit college, I was in high school. <laughs> when I was a teenager, when I was a kid watching TV, it just seemed, it was obvious. They didn't say it so bluntly, but it was obvious. And when I got to college, um, so this is, you know, I'm kind of old now, guys. I started college in 1989. Um, everybody, you know, all my non-Christian friends completely accepted that it was normal and okay to have sex outside of marriage, premarital sex, extramarital sex, whatever you want to call it. We have, there's actually an old word for it. It's called fornication. Nobody thought it was bad. But this is really interesting. They still thought that if you just kind of like let yourself have sex with whomever you want. All my friends thought this in college. That basically, and this is the word they use, and so please forgive me for using such a rude word. They would say, you're slutty. <laughs> And they considered it utterly gross. And if, if anybody, if I said to them back then, hey guys, in about 20 years from now, 
people will consider it completely okay and normal that you can get on an app and go swipe, 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 swipe. And the whole point is to use somebody else's body to have sex with their completely devoid of relationship. They would have been like, oh my gosh, that's not going to happen. That's completely disgusting. Because they could not have imagined that sex could be utterly divorced from relationship. But they did not know that when God and his wisdom and covenant was gone. This is the only way it could go. It's got to go this way. Because if you got no God, then the relationship, and it's not even ultimately about relationship. So what's sex? It's, it's about procreation. It's kind of about procreation. It's kind of about relationship, but we can even disconnect it from procreation, right? Then ultimately it comes about down to pleasure or need. And if you're very needy, and your need demands that you can use somebody else to fill your emptiness, your need, then what's wrong with that? <laughs> and this is where we are. And it's a terrible place to be. Um, so let me say a couple of things. Adult, so sex outside of marriage, even before you get, before you get married, and I, and I want to say this, I don't mean to say this in an overly harsh and mean way, some of you think that you are not an adulterer because you never, you haven't gotten married <laughs> and you didn't cheat on your husband because, or your, or your wife because, but you had quite a lot of sex before you got married or at least with one person or two persons. Let me tell you, that's adultery. <laughs> that's outside of the covenant. That's against exactly what God's blessing for you is. And it was a violation against God and against your spouse or your future spouse if you're still single, and against yourself. And so, um, it's like adultery before the fact, but it's still a form of adultery. And I want to say something else. Um, of course, we know that there's this thing called pornography. And, um, and so, maybe you actually haven't had intercourse with somebody else. Uh, but you, you've looked at quite a bit of pornography. And well, I don't know, even one, the numbers are horrific especially men, and you know, the, the usage of pornography is rising and rising inside the church, and it's rising among women. It's a form of betrayal. It's a kind of adultery. And one more point, there's this word pornography, but you know where it comes from? It comes from this Greek word porneia, and in the, and in the ancient world, they use this word porneia basically to mean, it's, it's just like a blanket word, porneia, <laughs> porneia. Every way that we are sexually depraved and unfaithful and do not do so in this beautiful way inside of covenant to honor and celebrate with your husband or your wife this most glorious gift from God, which is supposed to point toward life and to be united, union with the Lord himself. And uh, this word is porneia. We are drowning in porneia, right? And it's killing us. And so, but before it is even about the body and it is about sex, it is first and foremost about our hearts and relationship. And first and foremost, it is, it's a problem. It's a spiritual problem because there, there's a relationship that's missing or it's degraded or it's very weak. And what I want to say to you today is that first and foremost, one of the reasons why maybe you might have a porn addiction or while you're constantly 
fantasizing about some other, a woman or a man, or you always think that this is going to be the thing inside your life is because the one who is supposed to be the one who fills the heart inside your life is missing. The person who is supposed to be the completer for you that you're longing for in covenant, you're running away from covenant to covenant yourself, to, you, 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 to unite yourself to something else, to someone else. At the end of the day, the deepest brokenness of our hearts is a kind of adultery. It's spiritual adultery. This is the first point I want you to get across. If you do not run toward covenant and live inside a covenant, if you're not looking for the completion of covenant from God, you will break your life. And you're going to break your life through what the Bible calls adultery. And so, this is the first and foremost point I want to get across. It's a hard point. It's a deep and profound point. And I hope you hear this. And thankfully, there's good news, okay? Now, let me go to part two. Let's go to part two. Adultery is profound betrayal. So I want to say this. Adultery isn't even primarily about sex. It's why adultery is such a horrible sin. So I don't know if you guys watch... Um, my wife likes uh, crime dramas. <laughs> and so I've watched a lot of... Uh, I watch a lot of uh, these crime dramas. CSI. <laughs> um, you know... Uh, Blue Bloods, we watched an episode of Blue Bloods last night. Uh, you name it, a crime drama. Um, my, my wife and I, you know, we wa- I, she loves it, I watch it with her. And you know what's really interesting? Um, one of the foremost motives for murder, you know, commandment number six that we talked about last week, is adultery. You need this person to love you and to fulfill you. And it's not even primarily about the sex. You know what it's about? It's about the betrayal. <laughs> they have stabbed you and cut you in the heart. And for that, they want to kill you. What's well, the story of the world? You know what it is? But what the Bible teaches is that God knows what it's like to be stabbed that way. And who's the one stabbing them? It's us. So let me take you to a, a really important verse, passage. Hosea chapter 2. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the prophet Hosea, it's a crazy book. It's an unbelievable book. God calls a, a, a guy named Hosea to be a prophet. And right in the first chapter, the command is, I want you to go marry this woman. And let me tell you about this woman. She's basically a whore. And she's going to rip your life apart. And the point of you marrying her is that your life will proclaim what it feels like for me to be married to my bride, Israel. That's the point of the book. It's crazy. That's, it's intense, right? And so, you know, it's not your typical like, thing that's being taught in like fourth grade Sunday school, okay? And most people never read this, but you should. Um, so here's Hosea chapter 2, verse 1. This is God telling Hosea what to say to Israel. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. So here's what it says. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received 
mercy. Plead with your mother. Plead. Your mother is Israel, right? Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife. And I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face. And her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land. And listen to this. And kill her with thirst. That's God. Verse four. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. My lovers are the one who gives me the good things in my life. That's God's accusation. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So that we want to go after adultery and whoredom because this is the way we're going to get the good things in life. And God actually puts obstacles in our way. That's what he says. Verse 7. She, this is Israel, his bride. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than the now. So he knows that she's going to come back to him. And isn't this what we do? We go to Jesus when things are bad. When things are okay, then we go to the things that we love in the world that we really hope in. And then when things are bad, then we go back to him. Verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is the name of the most popular god of the day. Let me say it a little bit differently. And it was I who gave her education and health and opportunity and gave her wealth and prosperity and a good economy. Instead, they used it for success. They used it for their false god. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will put away the Super Bowl parties and all the barbecues, and going to the beach with things like a pandemic. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig leaves, of which she said, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give, oh, the Almighty reigns. Of which she said, oh, darn it. The Almighty reigns. Sorry, I've got this out of order. Oh, no. 
One, two, three. Oh, these are my wages. I'm sorry. Okay, let me back up. Okay, I got super stressed out there for a moment. Okay, verse 12. All right. Uh, it's embarrassing. Verse 12. And I will lay her vines and her fig leaves, waste her vines and her fig leaves, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. I'll punish her for all the celebrations she usually does for her gods. And when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry, went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. That's Hosea chapter 2. This is the meaning of adultery. Um, I want us to, to sit and chew on this and really sit and marinate on this understanding that adultery, before it is a physical act, before it's somehow between a man and a woman, it's about between us, God's people, and God. And it's about this really seriously screwed up marriage that we have to God. And it really upsets him, right? But, you know, this is our bridegroom, and so I want to say a few things about this. Um, this is a really profound passage, and it's really ultimately saying that the adulterer is all of us. And it starts first and foremost from your heart and your mind. You know, last week we learned that murder starts from your heart and your mind. It starts with hatred, starts with bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. Well, adultery starts with the desire. Desire with the desire for and the desire to give, you know, attribute to all your happiness and success and all the things that fill up your life to someone else or to something else. So when your career just completely takes off, when you get into that school, it's like, yes, now everything in my life is going to be so fulfilled. Or when you meet your, your, the person that you think is, going to, is your soulmate. So now everything you think your life is going to be fulfilled. That's what this passage is talking about. We say in the church, Jesus is whom we need, and he's our life and our hope. But then on Monday, on Monday, that's what we say. And that's how a bride should talk about her husband, her true husband, the real bridegroom, Jesus. But on Monday, our heart is constantly longing for some other husband, for some other lover. And this is what God is saying. And... Um, so one of the things I want to say to you today is I, I really you know, want, want to talk about the nature of your spiritual life and the meaning of church. Church is the one place where this adulterous heart has to get pushed back. And worship is the place we come into the fullness of our relationship with the one who truly loves us, the true bridegroom. And the way our hearts move in worship is really the movement it has to be all the time. <laughs> when we're doing work, when we're hanging out with our kids, when we're eating and when we're playing, that ultimately it is first and foremost always a longing and love to God first. And in this way, we're all adulterers. And I want to just give you some, you know, some examples of this, okay? Um, we really do want to have a union. We want to be enveloped. We want 
this thing that we love to come into our hearts and our life and fill up our hearts and our life. It's like if your life and your body is like a cup, you want the God that you love the most to fill up your cup. And you know what? It's not Jesus. Very often, even though we may actually know and love Jesus, it's not Jesus. There's this thing that's happening all, all around the churches, around the, around the country. Kids who grow up in the church, they go to church. Some of them, I'm not, I'm not talking about the wishy-washy kids with the wishy-washy parents who come to churches. Sometimes I'm talking about the kid who's there all the time. The parents who seem so faithful. And the reason why maybe not even 50% of those kids stick with Jesus through college. And then some of them do, and then the numbers fall yet again. The reason is it's because of this. Because deep down, I know they look like good cherubic little angels at church. But really, they are they're prostitutes in the making. And then when they go to college, it's like now there's no mom and dad you know, keeping them from their prostitution. They go and choose their real love, their real hope. And then they go run off. And yet God is so merciful, he calls some of them back. And I hope many of them back. And I hope there are church many will come back. So just, just uh, let me just give you just three examples, okay? I just kind of picked the three biggest gods um, that we play the whore. That's the way Hosea chapter 2 says, play the whore. My bride has played the whore. So first, you ever see those uh, movie? You ever seen a movie where um, somebody immediately gets like super rich or gets a lot of money all at once? And then you ever seen a sequence where they literally wrap themselves in the money? There's like all, there's like a bed just with, you know, tons and tons of $100 bills or something like this. And then someone gets into that bed and they roll around inside the money. You ever seen that? It's, it's, um, I've seen that in multiple movies or sometimes TV shows. You know what's happening there? What they're actually doing is they're basically having sex with the money. <laughs> They're basically saying, money, <laughs> I got all this money. <laughs> and now, now that I have money, let's just roll around in it and become one with it and unite myself to it. Let me celebrate my union with money. It's prostitution. It's like, and some of you are like, oh, I wouldn't do that. That's just, you know, so beneath me. No, that's not how... A lot of people do it. What they do, the other way they do it, the more respectable way we do it, is then we surround ourselves with the trophies of money. <laughs> and so, um, I don't know if you've ever been to anybody's house. And, um, and by the way, lots of people do this. You don't have to be rich to do this, but it's the most obvious with somebody who's rich. Someone who's rich, they love all the super fine things of their house. And they pick just the right countertop for their perfect kitchen. And they picked the, this glorious refrigerator. And they have just the right kind of art on the wall. And all these things are the promises and the trophies of the God of money. And they love surrounding themselves with this thing. It's not unlike rolling around inside the money. That's what it is. That's one way. That's one way we do adultery with money. And, you know, you don't have to be rich. You could be poor. So you're poor. You're like, I'm poor. I can't do that. Well, yes, you can. You can have the same adulterous heart because you can be poor, but there's one thing inside your house 
and it represents the prize of money. And so it could be like something that you won and this just, it symbolizes, maybe it symbolizes the dream that you have of your life. Or so maybe when some of you guys are young, so when I was in college, they used to have this thing. Um, they used to have this poster that was really, really popular and it had, it had like a garage of like five cars and it was like a Lamborghini and a Ferrari and it was like these super expensive hot cars and then it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's completely stupid, but that's what it said, okay? And you know what? A lot of my friends, they got that poster and you'd walk into the dorm room and you'd see that poster on the wall. You know what that is? They're a poor college student. That's the trophy and prize of money. That's their adultery on the wall right there. A second one, we're in the Bay Area, we're in Silicon Valley. We, so some of you are like, I'm not that crass pastor. It's not about money for me. You know, it's not about money. You build your life on success. That's the big one around here, success. And so you got to get into X, you have to get a certain number on your SAT or ACT. You got to get into certain, you got to have a certain number on the, on your, um, you know, it starts right there in your teenage years, on your, AP, on your APs. You got, you got to become the uh, student body president. Or you've got to become, you know, the captain of this or that. And then you got to get into a certain brand name school. And then afterwards, you have to live in a certain, you have to have a brand name job at a brand name company. <laughs> and then you have to live in the brand name neighborhood with the brand name school. And so... I mean, I'm, I'm very well aware of this. When I was, uh, <laughs> so this is kind of embarrassing. I remember um, when I was in high school, um, so I'll tell you something kind of nasty about my family. My family, we, we, we like the success guy. <laughs> this is our form of adultery. Okay? My mom thought that the schools in Saratoga and Los Gatos were better than the schools in Cooper. It's funny today, it's, it's kind of flipped because their scores were better. And so even though you can get a fancier, nicer house for less money in that neighborhood and the schools there were really good, no, no. <laughs> Success was over here. And you got to get into this brand name neighborhood. So let me just pause for a moment here. How can you tell the difference if you are a money prostitute or a success whore? How can you tell that difference? So... I'll give you a hint. Would you rather go to a school that's less prestigious and then have more money in life? Or would you, and you don't care about the honors, but you want to have all the nice things, then you're a money prostitute. But if you think it's better to have all the accolades and the name, and you love that certain kind of sticker on your bumper sticker, you know what I'm talking about. All of you, uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Then you're a success prostitute, right? Let me give you one more. Um, one more. Uh, you know, we live, we're up here in Northern California. In Southern California, they're not, they're, 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 they're not into success like the way we're into success. Their God, they prostitute themselves the beauty and admiration God. <laughs> so in LA, Southern California, you know, that's the God or goddess. Maybe it's a goddess, right? That they prostitute themselves to. And not surprisingly, 
guess what? They're prettier than us. <laughs> you ever notice that? You're flying to LA, and all of a sudden, everybody's better looking. Flying to you know, San Jose, and then all of a sudden, you know, if you go from LA to San Jose, all of a sudden, people get dumpier, but smarter. <laughs> We're smarter than them. It's, it's weird. It's like high school divided up. All the pretty and popular people, LA. All the nerdy and kind of dumpy people, San Jose, right? It's different prostitution. It's different idolatries. Now, of course, there are smart people and nerdy people in LA. And of course, there are, there's like money idolaters everywhere, including in poor, poor places too. But you know, it's just a little picture of what it looks like, what everyday prostitution playing the whore looks like. And I'll say one more thing before I get to part three of my message. You know, this, it's actually even worse. <laughs> I know, it gets so bad. It gets even worse than this. Do you know, the, next, the other thing that it does is we look down on other people that don't have this, that don't whore themselves off to the same God that we like. <laughs> so, if you're into success and you think the people, person who's into money, you think, come on, so shallow. That's what we do. Oh, Gosh, she, she thinks if she gets that color out of a bottle and gets her hair a certain way, and if she just gets the right Botox, then pff, so shallow. That's the world. First, we prostitute ourselves to the gods because our gods have to make us. We, we actually think these gods are going to fill up our lives and fulfill us, and then we turn around, and anybody else who doesn't share the same idolatry, the same adultery, then we look down on them. And that's history. That's the terribleness of life. And um, so, um, you know, you want to have some understanding of what makes life so bad? It's like that. And um, now, <laughs> gosh, I feel kind of, it seems almost too simplistic to say it, but this way. But it's true. Life is mostly adulterous idolatry and pride. I'm talking about the good parts. I'm not talking about murder, rape, oppression, injustice. I'm talking about the things we like. The things we like, the good parts, it's filled with adultery and pride. Okay. We need some good news, and so let me close. <laughs> I want to close um, by giving you the gospel. And I want to take you to two passages, two glorious, glorious passages that gives us the promise of God's answer for this adulterous heart, okay? So let me take you to two. These are two verses. This is, this is nothing. I don't have to be clever. I'll just give you the Bible, okay? Here's Hosea chapter two. These are the words that follow what I just read. So that was verse 113. Right after God basically tells us he's going to kill us and let us die of our own thirst, then he gives us this word. This is, he also tells Hosea to say, verse, four, uh, verse 14, Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. That's the prostituting wife. That's us. I will allure her. 
and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. He will actually remove all this idolatrous calling out to success all the time from our mouth. Right? And they shall be remembered by, my, by name no more. Verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, that is with all of the earth and all of creation. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. All the oppression, all the violence, all the competition from our pride and our wickedness, God will finally abolish through covenant. Verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know Yahweh. You shall know the Lord. You know what that word to know means? In the Bible, to know also means to have sexual union with, to know. It's the same word. This guy knew her, it basically meant he had sex with her, and they shall ultimately have ultimate, fundamental, deep, one, knowing union to God. It's the promise. It's a prophetic promise. You know, this is given in ancient Israel well before the Messiah came. And they would continue one generation, some generations would be more faithful and then they would fail. This is the cycle of our life. We sort of come to God and then we, do, we fall for a while and then we fall away through our adulterousness. And this was the history. And then, but then finally, Jesus came. The one who can complete the marriage. Who can make these words come true. I will betroth to you you to me forever, and that you may run away. And I want to give you this verse. This is a verse. This is from Revelation chapter 19. So this is how the this is the you know chapter 19. There's only 22 chapters in Revelation. This is right toward the end of the Bible. Here's how it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. We, we have made ourselves ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, those are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this is the way I want to close. Brothers and sisters, you want an antidote toward your adulterous heart? Worship God. Love Jesus. Long for him. Make him, make much of him. Grow in him. Do everything you possibly can. Like you start fantasizing about money and about success or you lust after something, you're thinking about porn, or whatever it is that you do, you start thinking about your, your soulmate, these are, this is our adulterous hearts. But you know what needs to be in this place? You must worship Jesus. I want to close this way. Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of the prophetic promise of Hosea chapter 2, 14 to 20. God should hate us. God should kill us and destroy us. Creation is good, but we make the world wicked. And we do so specifically in betrayal of the one who actually loves us. He's the one who blesses us, but we don't attribute that blessing to him. We go and celebrate something else more than him. On the cross, Jesus, who is Yahweh, Yahweh in the flesh, he took our betrayal upon himself and he died the death that our betrayal and our whorish adultery and pride deserved. And his blood washed us of our filth so that he can forgive us, accept us, embrace us. So that he can make us a new kind of bride and give us new hearts and new minds, eyes and ears to see and hear his voice, his presence, his calling, his beauty, his promises. Receive and respond to his love. And become the kind of bride that truly does love the true bridegroom and long for him. Look to him. Say with true hearts that you, you, Jesus, you are our hope. You are our treasure. You are our life. You're the deepest love of our hearts. You are bridegroom. We long for you. We love you with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Today, could you say that? And tomorrow, even though you know your heart may say something else, ask Jesus to give, pour out his spirit into you and say how much I need you. Thank you for loving me and washing me and forgiving me again and again and again, for alluring me and betrothing yourself to me, to us, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to love you. Lord, uh, we don't even, I don't even know if we even know what love is. It's this feeling. It's often a selfish feeling of longing and aching need, and then we call it love. But it's not even really truly love. You love us when we are unlovely. You love us when we deserve rejection. We deserve death. We deserve actually the ultimate condemnation 
for we are betrayers. We stab you and we run away from you. And yet thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to run after us and heal us and wash us and give us new hearts and give us the power, the kind of bride, the kind of person who would love you the way we should, the way we need. Thank you for this love. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this redemption and the healing of life and our marriage. And I pray that you'd pour this into our hearts and bless our lives and our families and our city with true marriage, with true covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.